What's happening in the world coming up on NTD News? First, our top stories. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington asking lawmakers to continue funding Ukraine, but a fresh round of Republican opposition poses a warning sign for him. India has harsh words for Canada as the country explains why it stopped issuing visas at its Canadian consulate. Cancer appearing in ways never seen before. Dr. Harvey Risch says unusual cancers could be traced back to COVID vaccines. We bring you his take. OpenAI is facing a lawsuit from some of America's best-selling authors. Among them is the creator of Game of Thrones. Find out what their claims are. And Connecticut will give two men who spent 30 years in jail $25 million. The men were convicted on fabricated evidence from a famous forensics expert. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers, our top news Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today to drum up more U.S. funding. It's his second trip to D.C. in nine months, but it comes amid growing opposition to sending taxpayer dollars to his country. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good afternoon, Iris. How does Zelensky's visit this time differ from his last? Good afternoon, to Chris. So the last time Zelensky was here, he gave a speech to a joint session of Congress and he really received the hero's welcome on Capitol Hill. But this time around, his visit here is a lot more private, where he mostly talks to lawmakers behind closed doors. And in fact, Speaker House, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this morning said that Zelensky had actually asked for a joint session, but they didn't want to give it to him because they simply didn't have time and that Zelensky had done it before. And in addition to the change in formality, the underlying atmosphere on Capitol Hill is also just a lot more different. For example, although bipartisan majorities still support more aid to Ukraine, a growing group of Republicans are explicitly voicing opposition to a $24 billion additional aid package that the White House is asking for. And in fact, just this morning, more than two dozen Republican senators as well as House members sent a letter to the Biden administration explicitly saying that they would not support more aid to Ukraine. And they asked questions such as, what has your money gone to? How is the counteroffensive going? And what is our strategy? And what is the president's exit plan? So these are the questions that Republican lawmakers have. And we heard that Senator Josh Hawley this morning on Capitol said this. Watch. Oh, I'm not in favor of additional Ukraine funding, particularly not without any real oversight. It just, it just amazes me that we can't have an inspector general to actually track where the money is going. But what they also said to us last night, Manu, was is that uh, this is going to end in a negotiated settlement, which is different than I've heard before, that uh, there's no realistic prospect of Ukraine actually prevailing militarily. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said after meeting Zelensky today that Zelensky actually answered a lot of his questions about the direction of the war. But it remains to be seen whether Zelensky, whether McCarthy, as well as other Republicans on the Hill, would actually support the additional funding that the White House is asking for. And later this afternoon, Zelensky is meeting with President Biden at the White House. And we do expect to hear a message from them about why the U.S. can walk away from supporting Ukraine. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Iris. Poland says it will honor previously agreed supplies of ammunition and armaments to Ukraine. 
It follows an earlier announcement by Poland's prime minister, who said Poland will no longer supply Ukraine with weapons. The decision to stop supplying weapons came during a dispute over grain exports and followed Ukrainian President Zelensky's address before the UN General Assembly on Tuesday. Poland's prime minister said instead of sending weapons to Ukraine, his country will focus on arming itself. The escalating dispute stems from a grain trade crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Poland says Ukrainian oligarchs flooded the Polish market with Ukrainian grain to the detriment of Polish farmers. Warsaw has been one of Kyiv's staunchest allies since the start of the conflict in February 2022. It has donated a wide range of weaponry to Kyiv, including modern Leopard 2 tanks and Soviet-era fighter jets. Poland also provided military training to Ukraine's armed forces and is hosting around one million Ukrainian refugees. A somber milestone in Kyiv, air raid sirens have sounded for more than 1,000 hours in the Ukrainian capital since Russia launched its full-scale invasion. Head of the Kyiv military administration made the announcement in a Telegram post. He emphasized the need to take these alarms seriously, adding, The most recent air raid alarm in Kyiv lasted more than two hours, following a Russian air attack. The mayor of Kyiv said multiple districts across the capital suffered damage with power outages reported in some areas. India's foreign ministry speaks about Canada and why it has stopped issuing visas in the country. A spokesman stressed security threats. If you're talking about reputational uh, issues and reputational damage, if there's one, any country that uh, needs to look at this, I think it is Canada and its growing reputation as a place, uh, as a safe haven for terrorists, for extremists, and for organized crime. You are aware of the security threats being faced by our High Commission and consulates in Canada. This has disrupted their normal functioning. Accordingly, our High Commission and consulates are temporarily unable to process visa applications. Tensions between the two countries have risen after Canada's announcement linking Indian agents to the murder of Sikh separatist Hardeep Singh Nijar. Nijar was shot outside a Sikh cultural center in British Columbia, Canada in June. Canada also announced it will address staff at its High Commission in India. Each country has kicked out one of the other's diplomats. Canada has the largest population of the Sikh religious minority group outside of India. Nijar was the second prominent Sikh killed in Canada in the past two years. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down as chairman of Fox Corporation and News Corp, ending a more than seven-decade career. His son, Lachlan Murdoch, will become sole chairman of both companies. The elder Murdoch made the announcement Thursday in a memo to employees. The media mogul assembled a media empire that includes Fox News. The 92-year-old wrote, For my entire professional life, I have been engaged daily with news and ideas, and that will not change. But in his words, the time is right for me to take on different roles. Coming up, images emerge of an ID card for illegal immigrants. It's supposed to let customs officials access personal information more easily. But conservatives see problems with it. And the U.S. will spend more than $750 billion over the next decade to revamp nearly every part of its aging nuclear defense system. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
Thank you for staying with us. Photo IDs for illegal immigrants are becoming a reality. Leaked images revealed the draft IDs from the Biden administration is planning. The leaked card shows a photo, a QR code, and lines of personal details. Immigrations and Customs says the cards are an improvement from the paper documents currently given to illegal immigrants. They say the card is secure. Conservative detractors say the cards seem to welcome immigrants to stay in the country illegally and that efforts should go towards fixing the immigration system. They also fear that the cards could expose sensitive security information and worry about directing resources away from enforcing the border. But ICE told Fox last year that the card will save the agency money, free up resources, and make information more accessible to agents. Chaos at the border. A southern border port suspended cargo processing because the agents there were diverted to process illegal immigrants. Meanwhile, the Biden administration will grant one group of immigrants temporary protected status, enabling them to work here for now. We speak with a retired special agent for ICE on the thickening plot at the U.S.-Mexico border. Victor Avila, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Victor, the Biden administration will grant almost half a million Venezuelans in the U.S., including those who came here illegally, uh, illegally, the ability to work here temporarily. How could this impact the growing migrant crisis in cities like New York? It's uh, it's impacting it tremendously. And let me tell you, this uh, temporary protective status is not the way to circumvent the legal immigration process that we have uh, in our system. Uh, this administration continues to circumvent our asylum laws and uh, our immigration laws by incorporating these type of programs, whether it's the temporary protective status program that you mentioned, whether it's a parole system that we have, and even our own asylum criteria, this is completely against the law. And now a cargo processing center at uh, an El Paso port um, was temporarily suspended this week as border agents were diverted to process non-citizens amid recent influxes. Um, what's the impact of a move like this on cross-border trade down there? It's incredible. I just returned from El Paso, Texas, and the reason why uh, this uh, cargo facility uh, and the CBP officers that man it were pulled from there is because El Paso is at a full, actually beyond capacity at the detention facilities. I stood outside the biggest facility, tent facility, that was built for illegal aliens, and there's over 5,000 in there right now. As a matter of fact, border agents told me that they're releasing 1,000 illegal aliens per day to the streets because they have absolutely no more room for them. And so, therefore, they have now pulled not just Border Patrol agents, but the CBP, what we call OFO, Office of Field Operations, from the cargo facility to help process. Again, that's not the answer. To mitigate and to move the illegals into coming to this country easier and faster is not the answer. And it it is now disrupting our our actual uh, real commercial and uh, legal commercial trade that we have with Mexico. Are Border Patrol agents at cargo processing centers trained in processing non-citizens? They do have the ability to go uh, on the computer systems and and process. Obviously, they're not as uh, 
uh, as familiar with it because they don't do that on a, on a, on a regular basis. The cargo uh, responsibilities of the cargo uh, inspectors is very different. They're looking for narcotics. They're looking for other illicit substances and goods coming into our country, commercial fraud and other such things. And so all of a sudden now they have to focus on processing these individuals. And when I say processing, it's really not a complete vetting process. That means checking each individual thoroughly to see if, in fact, they're allowed to come in the country. Now, Victor, border agents are clearly spread thin right now. Uh, but this, you know, to put this in perspective for us, how does the current level of border agents compare to, say, in the past? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, a lot of them we've, uh, we have lost, uh, not only to uh, them uh, leaving the job, retirement, and having a hard time replacing those agents because of the harsh work conditions. Not just that, but they've been demoralized. They've been asked to do not only not their scope of their duties, but actually doing stuff that is illegal, and these agents are forced to do it or else they will lose their jobs and their pensions. And so I talked to a lot of these agents. Uh, we're losing a, a record number to suicides. It is really, really something that we have to really look into because these border agents are being used as a ploy. And, and let me tell you, 80 percent of the Border Patrol agents are not assigned to the official duties on the line to protect our borders. They're being used to facilitate the entry of illegal aliens into this country. Victor Avila, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. The 2024 election is less than 14 months away, but voting machine companies are already making sure their systems will be safe. Three big voting equipment vendors announced they granted a group of cybersecurity experts access to their software and hardware for nearly two days. The goal was to see if they could find ways to break into the systems. The practice is known as coordinated vulnerability disclosure. Some of the attack scenarios included stuffing ballot boxes and knocking electronic poll books offline. Poll books are what polling stations use to process voters. The results are still being processed, but the vendors say they are already making tweaks to their security pro protocols in response to the tests. The U.S. will spend more than $750 billion over the next decade to revamp nearly every part of its aging nuclear defenses. Here to discuss is NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, that's a lot of money. This sounds pretty urgent. Yeah, Chris. Well, officials are saying they simply can't wait any longer. Um, and that's because some systems uh, and parts are more than 50 years old. And, you know, Chris, uh, for some of the components uh, in these, uh, like plastics and metals and wiring inside the, each detonator, there's also questions about how years of aging might affect their integrity. Uh, technicians starting this could be the government's biggest nuclear overhaul since, uh, since the Cold War. Uh, and that's including new stealth bombers, uh, submarines, ground-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. And how is this overhaul done, Don? Yeah, um, so reports are saying that it's not easy. Um, think about it, right? Uh, the best way to certify a weapon uh, works as designed is to blow it up. But explosive tests have been ban banned since the George H.W. Bush administration by an uh, international treaty. And further complicating matters is that uh, because the weapons are so old, many of those original manufacturers and contractors have gone out of business. Uh, so this is forcing our nuclear labs to reverse engineer old parts. 
But what they have to do is um, technicians put components through endless tests. They heat weapon parts to extreme temperatures. Uh, you know, drop them at high speeds, uh, simulating a plane crash, shooting at them at high velocity. Um, out of testing guns and rattle and shake them for hours on end. So these tests are meant to uh, simulate real-world scenarios. Uh, they do these tests to make sure that the weapons are stable enough to blow up as intended, if needed. And what are officials saying about why we need to maintain our nuclear weapons? Sure. Well, the director of weapons programs for the Department of Energy says that uh, we want what we want to do is preserve our way of life, right, without fighting major wars. And nothing really works to deter aggressors unless you have the foundation of a nuclear deterrent. That's what he's saying. Uh, some military leaders are also saying that the U.S. has entered an era of global threats, including uh, nuclear weapons buildup by China and, of course, Russia's repeated threats to use a nuclear bomb in Ukraine. So, of course, America's aged weapons needs to be replaced uh, to ensure they work. And by the way, the U.S. maintains 1,550 active nuclear warheads, and the government plans to moder modernize them all. Um, so the key radioactive atom in, in the plutonium pit has a half-life of 24,000 years, which is the amount of time it would take roughly uh, half of the radioactive atoms to uh, decay. And that would suggest the weapons should be viable for a few years to come. So um, the good news is we still have some time to do that. All right. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you, Chris. COVID-19 vaccines affecting cancer patients. Dr. Harvey Risch says cancers are occurring in excess in people who got the shot. Here's what they say. Dr. Harvey Risch is Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale. Before COVID, his research focused extensively on cancer. He recently sat down with the Epoch Times American thought leaders to talk about the connection between the COVID vaccine and cancer. Very strange things. For example, 25-year-olds with colon cancer who, who don't have family histories of the disease. That's basically impossible along the known paradigm for how colon cancer works. Dr. Risch says cancer is something a healthy human body can fight and disable. If the immune system is compromised, however, cancerous cells are left to multiply and grow. That's the mechanism I think that's the most likely here, that we know that the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, have done various degrees of damage to the immune system in, in a fraction of people who've taken them. And that damage could be anywhere from getting COVID more often, getting other infectious diseases, and perhaps it may also be cancer in the longer term. Another example Dr. Risch gave was breast cancer. Normally, if there is a remanifestation after surgical removal, the remanifestation occurs after two decades. However, vaccinated women are now seen to remanifest breast cancers in much shorter periods of time. They've been designated as turbo cancers. Some of these cancers are so aggressive that between the time that they're first seen and when they present, can they come back for treatment? After a few weeks, they've grown dramatically compared to what oncologists would have expected for the way cancer normally progresses. Dr. Risch also said medical agencies don't recognize someone as being vaccinated inside the first two weeks of vaccination. This happens because the medical agencies 
say the effects of the vaccine need two weeks to start manifesting. However, most serious adverse events after receiving the vaccine have occurred within the first four days. He said that's why three-quarters of adverse effects are being recorded as happening to unvaccinated people. Just this month, the CDC reaffirmed its position that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. The center said millions of people in the U.S. have received the shots under the most intense safety monitoring in U.S. history. You can watch the full interview with Dr. Harvey Risch and more episodes of American Thought Leaders on EpicTV.com. When we return, a new rail service between Orlando and Miami, some of Florida's biggest tourist hubs. It's the first new train in a century to connect American cities for passengers. And Google facing a lawsuit after bad map directions led a man to drive off a bridge to his death. Now his family is seeking justice. We'll have more on that after the break. Welcome back. Two wrongfully convicted men are now getting over $25 million from Connecticut. The men spent decades behind bars on fabricated evidence. The two men were convicted in 1989 of a murder that happened four years earlier. But in 2019, their convictions were overturned. The men were teenagers at the time of their conviction. No blood was found on their clothes, bodies, or vehicles, but supposed evidence of a bloody towel put forth by famous forensic scientist Henry Lee led to their conviction. Latest testing found that the towel was blood-free. Lee has denied fabricating evidence, but also has not stated that the two men are definitely the ones who committed the crime. Lee rose to fame for testimony on handling blood evidence in the O.J. Simpson case. A solution may be on the horizon for the overcrowded Fulton County Jail. The county sheriff's office has proposed relocating inmates to other facilities hundreds of miles away. Officials say the jail's current population stands at a little under 3,400. The county's board of commissioners heard details of the plan yesterday. Transfer options include two facilities, one in Folkston, Georgia, and another in Tutwiler, Mississippi. Folkston is just north of Jacksonville, Florida. Officials say the Fulton County Sheriff was unable to find open beds in facilities closer to Atlanta. This summer, the Justice Department launched a civil rights investigation into the jail following multiple deaths at the facility. Seventeen of America's best-selling writers are waging a lawsuit against OpenAI, including the creator of Game of Thrones. They say that generative AI uses their copyrighted works without permission. Here's the legal debate. John Grisham could be going to court for real. The legal thriller writer is among major U.S. authors unhappy with ChatGPT creator OpenAI. A trade group that represents the likes of Grisham this week filed to sue the firm. The Authors Guild also represents big names like Game of Thrones novelist George R.R. R. Martin and freedom writer Jonathan Franzen. The suit accuses OpenAI of unlawfully training its artificial intelligence-based chatbot on their work. It joins several others from writers, visual artists and source code owners against generative AI providers. Similar lawsuits are pending against Meta Platforms and Stability AI over the data used to train their AI systems. OpenAI and other defendants have said their use of training data scraped from the internet qualifies as fair use under U.S. copyright law. 
A spokesperson for the company said on Wednesday that it respects authors' rights. But the Authors Guild said writers must have the ability to control if and how their works are used by generative AI. They said they needed this to, quote, preserve our literature. The new lawsuit is concerned with datasets used to train OpenAI's large language model to respond to human prompts. They allege it included text from the author's works that may have been taken from illegal online pirate book repositories. The complaint said ChatGPT generated accurate summaries of the author's books when prompted, which they believe indicated their text is included in its database. It also cited growing concerns that authors could be replaced by systems like ChatGPT that make what they called low-quality ebooks, impersonating authors and displacing human-authored books. A North Carolina family is suing Google, claiming their family member died after Google Maps led the man off a collapsed bridge. According to the lawsuit, Philip Paxson was following GPS directions in September 2022 when he drove off an unmarked, unbarricaded edge of the Snow Creek Bridge in Hickory. He crashed about 20 feet below and drowned. An attorney representing Paxson's family said the bridge collapsed years earlier in 2013 and accuses Google of failing to correct its mapping algorithms. Locals repeatedly pushed for the road to be fixed or properly barricaded. The lawsuit also lists two companies as defendants who it says failed to maintain the bridge. The family is suing for an undisclosed amount in negligence, willful and wanton conduct, and punitive damages. In a statement to CNN, Google said, quote, We have the deepest sympathies for the Paxson family. Our goal is to provide accurate routing information and maps, and we are reviewing this lawsuit. Florida is welcoming a new rail service that will run between Orlando to Miami. The train is the first of its kind to begin U.S. operations in the last hundred years. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. These neon yellow trains will run between Orlando and Miami starting Friday. They're part of a new intercity rail system called Brightline, offering service to Florida's biggest tourist hubs. All of a sudden, the, the idea of my car is the only way for me to get where I need to go is being challenged by a new product a new product that's safer, that's greener, that is a great value proposition. It's fun to do. Brightline is the first private inner-city passenger train to begin U.S. operations in a century. It's a $5 billion bet for Brightline's owner, Fortress Investment Group. The firm believes 8 million people will take the three-and-a-half-hour, 235-mile trip annually. Using the lessons learned from studying what works and what doesn't work around the globe, we've been able to craft this solution that is, we believe, tailor-made for an American consumer. Round-trip business class tickets will cost about $150. First-class tickets will go for nearly $300. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I decided to take the Bright Line just because it seemed like the coolest way to get down to Miami. I don't think the price is too bad. I mean, it's a little cheaper than an Uber, so it's, it's pretty good. Uh, it's quicker, too. Families and groups will be able to buy four round-trip tickets for about $400. 32 trains will run daily. You could copy, you could work on it. Like, it's really easy, and I didn't have a car, so I just took the Uber down from Bureau, and here I am. Brightline's challenge is to convince travelers that the prices are worthwhile. 
The trains will travel up to 79 miles per hour in urban areas and 110 miles per hour in less populated regions. They'll cruise through central Florida's farmland at 125 miles per hour. It's very nice. It's very sleek. Um, yeah, I just like the ambiance. It's just very, it's like very pretty and like very techy. Beyond Florida, Brightline is building a rail connecting Southern California and Las Vegas. It's expected to be completed by 2027. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A call to action for the Food and Drug Administration. A new government report says the agency needs to do more to penalize retailers who illegally sell tobacco to children. The report found the FDA conducted more than 1 million inspections for underage sales of tobacco from 2010 to 2020. In the year between 2019 and 2020, about 10% of the inspected stores had violations. Most often, a warning letter works. If it doesn't, the FDA can issue fines, but the report found the agency has had trouble combating serial violators. It also says online sales to kids is a growing problem. The report suggested the FDA work with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives to crack down on that. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we come back, find out how the Chinese Communist Party is influencing America's children and what can be done about it. We hear from an expert. And wedding planning, once an industry worth hundreds of billions of dollars in China, is now taking a hit. Industry players tell us why more shortly here on NTD News Today. Back to the news. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today to drum up more U.S. funding. It's his second trip to D.C. in nine months, but it comes amid growing opposition to sending taxpayer dollars to his country. India's foreign ministry says Canada has problems with organized crime and says security threats have forced India to suspend visa services at its consulates in Canada. Dr. Harvey Risch says COVID vaccines could be the reason for so-called turbo cancers doctors started seeing in young patients. He says that's because the vaccines compromised the immune system of some people who got the shots. America's top authors are taking OpenAI to court. Among them are big names like the author of Game of Thrones. They're concerned that the AI programs train with their copyrighted works. Connecticut will pay two wrongfully convicted men $25 million. The men spent 30 years in prison over evidence presented by famed forensics expert Henry Lee. Chinese communist influence in the classroom. House lawmakers held a hearing on Confucius classrooms. These Chinese language programs in American grade schools are funded by and controlled by the Chinese regime. We hear from the CEO of Black Ops Partners, a consulting firm acutely aware of the dangers of the Chinese Communist Party. Casey Fleming, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. First, talk about what was revealed during this recent hearing about Confucius classrooms. It's really about uh, information warfare in classrooms for our American children. And tell us more 
what, what did we what did we learn? What we learned was well, and we've known this because we've been doing this for years. But basically, our classrooms are at war. Our children are at war with the Chinese Communist Party. It's called unrestricted warfare, and it's and and part of that is uh, cognitive warfare or information warfare, and it's meant to. Uh, change the thinking, change the values of our American children, and to turn that into Chinese communist values. And how so? What goes on in these Confucius classrooms? Tell us about this program. It's all about money. Uh, schools need money. They always need money. And so they'll accept the money. So you start with, uh, you know, K through 12 and then universities as well. So they will take the money to, uh, uh, that's number one. And secondly, it's influence. So they load it with books, videos, when they're learning Mandarin um, and so on. All that is to punch up and push up the Chinese Communist Party and push down uh, American democracy, American uh, government and American values. So the CCP is paying them to uh, host these Confucius classrooms? 100 percent. Uh, these are Conf- Confucius classrooms. The th- same thing are Confucius institutes in uh, U.S. universities. Several of them were shut down because people people understood and, and our uh, government understood, state level, state and uh, federal government understood what was really going on with these Chinese uh, Confucius institutes in our universities. And all they did was rename them at our universities. But they're still going strong as anything. I think well over 500 classrooms are affected in the U.S. And why are these Confucius classrooms and Confucius institutes so controversial in the first place? Because it's Chinese communism being preached to our children to change the, their values uh, to make them good Chinese communist citizens these are our American children, and to put down and to detest uh, American values and the American the American way of life. What this is called again is unrestricted warfare, and our children are at the, on the front lines. Now, at the hearing, Nicole Neely, the president of Parents Defending Education, urged lawmakers to require K through twelve schools to disclose investments by foreign entities. What else can be done to defend against CCP influence in the classroom? Uh, Make a federal law that they cannot receive foreign influence and foreign funding, especially from a communist enemy state. And I say enemy because the Chinese Communist Party for years has declared the United States as their enemy. We, as an open and free nation, allow pretty much anything to come into our our country, our schools, our families, our living rooms. Um, we've got to stop that. This is this is wartime. Uh, it's not what Americans are familiar with. It's everything short of conventional warfare to to weaken your enemy. And that's that's what. So the point is, uh, families, parents need to be disclosed that this is going on, and this is the risk that you are having with your children. They need to sign a document every year when they register their children that you you need to understand. If your children are going to be signed up for Mandarin classes or Mandarin books or Chinese books, you have to understand that it's, it's information warfare. But the way to nail it at the top is make a federal law that no foreign influence in our schools or in our country, for that matter. All right. Casey Fleming, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The pandemic wasn't kind to wedding planners in China. 
Marriages were traditionally elaborate, expensive affairs. The industry, estimated at almost $500 billion, is now facing a bigger threat, a plunge in the number of couples willing to tie the knot. With the number of Chinese couples getting married in decline, scenes like this are becoming a rare sight. Less matrimony is a worrying trend for wedding planners in China, an industry estimated at almost $500 billion just three years ago. Yuan Jialiang ran a full-scale wedding planning business for almost a decade in Shanghai, before switching to wedding photography as demand for his services began to fall, and he hasn't looked back. In the process of switching from wedding planning to wedding photography, I started to realize that actually couples' demands for photography and videography will not change. No matter how the format of the wedding changes, no matter how the scales of the wedding changes, they still have the demand to record this precious time. So I found that I've made the right career change. China's wedding industry already hit a rough patch during the pandemic when many couples delayed their ceremonies. There were 6.8 million marriages across China last year, which is 800,000 fewer than in 2021. Now a bigger threat looms in couples less willing to spring for an all-out wedding. Ceremonies in China are traditionally elaborate, expensive affairs. But wedding planners report that couples who do go for it are spending less. This drop in marriage registrations will likely exacerbate the decline in births in China, already one of the fastest aging societies in the world. I think the next thing is, um, you know, China's demographic issue with with low birth rates. And I I think the reality right now is a a lot of younger adults in China feel that raising kids is just too expensive. And they they don't think the government has done enough to make uh, having children more affordable. Um, And that's also, I think, having a bit of a, a drag on the marriage industry as well. As the economy weakens and consumer confidence wanes, those in the industry are finding little cause for optimism. The whole environment has contributed to the fact that the wedding industry is not very prosperous now. I was probably hopeful for another big industry climax, but now I'm more worried than optimistic about the prospects. With high jobless rates and low household spending among the young and the middle class, Jewel Wong, who owns several stores in China selling designer wedding dresses, is staking the future of her company on wealthier clients that have weathered the economic downturn. Um, COVID caused such a big impact on everybody's lives. As a market, we see an absolute downturn in spending. So all alongside our strategy have been niche, 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 niche. Uh, We don't want to flow with the broader market because we don't think that's in a good place to go. Coming up, a strange ship-slash-building in Bolivia's El Alto sits roughly two miles above sea level. We hear from the architect of the famous Cholet style. And Australia's waste processing industry says compostable food is being thrown into landfills, while plastics end up in food bins. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Welcome back. More than 13,000 feet above sea level, a luxurious ship floats on the clouds in the Andes. The hope is to draw tourists to the Bolivian city of El Alto. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. 
El Alto is one of the highest altitude populated areas in the world. The Bolivian city sits 13,600 feet above sea level. Architect Freddy Mamani explains how El Alto has created an unusual urban identity with colorful buildings. So what we want to promote through this architecture is tourism, to focus on promoting the city of El Alto through architecture. But architecture with identity, with meaning, with its own ancestral roots, focusing on the future. Mamani is the biggest name in Cholet architecture. That's a neo-Andean style born in the city featuring bright pre-Hispanic facades. He says the boat-topped building is a new chapter in his career. This is a new phase in my line of work, a new stage that is dedicated to tourism, both local and foreign. Tourists have always visited in the Cholets. Foreigners have visited us to learn a little more about what we are doing and what we have innovated, and in addition, what this type of architecture means. Over time, Cholet buildings have become even more extravagant. The new thing about this building, El Crucero de los Andes, is that the inside of the building is being open to the public, to the neighbors of the city of El Alto, of the city of La Paz. Bolivia and the whole world is invited. Everyone must know that El Crucero de los Andes is here to welcome them. The Crucero de los Andes has 11 floors. A four-story ship stands on its large terrace. The boat will house a restaurant with beautiful views over the city and the snow-capped Andes. We have opened the doors to the people who visit us not only to stay in the event hall, but they can go up higher, into the depths of the building. In a traditional cholet, the highest part is reserved for the enjoyment of the owners. Flores says it's the best place to see the sunset over the Andes. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Australia says too many people are ignoring the rules on recycling bins. The waste processing industry says compostable food is being thrown into landfills while plastics end up in food bins. NTD's Andrew Thomas sorts through the details. Perth resident Lana Jones is determined to do her part for the environment. She carefully separates her food scraps from the other garbage. I don't think it's pretty easy to use. It's just like another way of recycling, I suppose. Jones puts her food waste in the food organics and garden organics bins in her building's basement. But she noticed that not everybody is abiding by the rules. I do think people have definitely got confused in my experience. Like, I'll go to put my rubbish in there and I'll see there's, like, plastic bags or or non-biodegradable bags or sometimes, like, nappies and things like that. Patrick Soares of Australian Organics Recycling Association can't help but notice the problem. He's also baffled that others aren't concerned. There's a lot of people out there that really don't care. They think that recycling is a joke. Um, It's not. We're deadly serious. Sydney launched the Food Organics and Garden Organics program 14 years ago. The idea is to reduce carbon emissions by preventing food waste from rotting in the landfill and instead use it for fertilizer or let it turn into soil. At the moment, half of what goes into the general waste bin is food waste and that's you know a resource that could be used a lot more carefully than going to landfill where it it gives off methane which is damaging to the environment. All Australian metropolitan households will need to recycle their food waste by 2023. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers. 